You've turned on Sexy Marriage Radio, where the best sex is happening in the marriage bed. Here are your hosts, Dr. Corey Allen and Shannon Etheridge. So, you know, Shannon, full well that I uh, peruse the internet and iTunes and stats and feedback and everything you- regarding our show. Are you referring to vanity searches? Well, <laughs> I, ref- I refuse to use that terminology. Okay. <laughs> um, but there's probably an element of truth in that. <laughs> so. Okay, we'll, we'll, call it, we'll call it the Sherlock syndrome. You're just investigating, uh, it's, right? It's research. It's research. Looking for clues. But Looking anyway, clues how we're doing. one of the things I love hearing and, and finding is when people jump on iTunes and leave us a review because, you know, that helps us climb the chart because the sexuality category in the iTunes department is is littered with anything goes uh it's just not really a, upholding the wholesomeness of of married sex and, and yeah. what it can do that make you feel like you need to take a shower afterwards. absolutely but but yeah. a couple things jump out is, is there's a is there a comment from a listener that says i love that real sexual issues in marriage are discussed it lifts the guilt and shame on some of the deepest intimate issues that go on between people and it lets me know that i'm not alone and I think that's a vital message that we provide is, yeah, that, hey, you're not alone. And that's the deepest need I think that anybody has. Absolutely. Uh, walking around this planet in human skin, we need to know we're not alone in yeah. our struggles and our concerns. Yeah. yeah. And then one yeah. of the most recent ones from the time that we're you know, recording this is – this is this is just straightforward in what we're talking about because you know Richard's joining us for another episode um, where we're talking about just when you got the whole concept of sex addiction and how it's entered into a marriage and so you've got the the betrayal and you've got how do I recover and you know and the relationship and dynamics. are we ever going to have sex again right and so here's here's a comment that was put on there in the middle of March. My relationship with my wife nearly fell apart three years ago when she caught me for the one zillionth time looking at porn. These guys are knowledgeable and real. It has become a big part of my restoration. Thanks for putting it out there. And that's the thing I love to jump on is part of our restoration because I do believe in the restorative nature of people. And I know you do, Shannon, and I know Richard Absolutely. does. And marriage is one of the great components, I think, that's designed to help us be restored. That in relationship mm-hmm. is a great path forward to yeah, and to have relationships, and to have a resilient marriage. Yes. I just think that takes intimacy to a whole new level. So yeah, without further ado, we're going to welcome back Richard Blankenship, who is a professional counselor in the Atlanta, Georgia area, and his, he specializes in working with couples um, that have had some sort of sexual betrayal. Um, and last show, if you didn't get a chance, if you're just jumping in on the show, you might want to rewind the tape and listen to the most recent show that we did where we focused on the betrayed spouse. But today we want to focus on the betraying spouse. And so Richard, thanks so much for making time to do a second show with us. Well, thanks for having me back. Looking forward to it. So help us understand from the, we had mentioned earlier that not everyone likes the label addict, but for lack of a better term, uh, for that person who's been acting out, what are some of the biggest fears and concerns they have and what are their biggest challenges that they've got facing them that that's like step number one for them to overcome? Well, their deepest fear, uh, I believe is one you touched on just a few minutes ago, and that's that fear of being alone. Uh, of being left, of being abandoned. 
And yeah, they're terrified that if anybody ever knows them, knows who they really are, knows what they struggle with, that no one will want anything to do with them. And so they maintain this dark secret that eventually overtakes them. Mm -hmm. And so what would you recommend as their first step toward getting real and getting healing just to, to start this process to, to, to embrace integrity once again? Well, in terms of a starting place for the addict, uh, getting into a good solid program of recovery, and that involves treating several dimensions. You know, you're going to be looking at you know, behaviorally doing things like filters on the computer, boundaries. Emotionally, you're going to be looking at what are the wounds I'm trying to medicate with the acting out behavior. There's going to be a therapeutic process to try to uh, deal with the cravings, to deal with what you're trying to heal, and then finding legitimate solutions for those problems and not just trying to meet them with illusions. Uh, spiritually, there's a healing process. Relationally, and this is the big thing we began to touch on in the last show, is you know, recovery is about so much more than just not acting out. It's about healing a relationship with a wounded partner, wounded children, even maybe extended family member and friends. Uh, so it's, it's about more than just not doing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of ripple effects that have to be addressed. And I know that um, in working with the couples that I have in the past, there's kind of this mentality that the betrayed spouse is like, you're overreacting. Uh, or I'm sorry. The, the betraying spouse is, is saying, to their husband or wife, you're overreacting because I'm, I'm repentant. I've, I'm coming clean. I've, it's all in my past. So just get over it fast. Kind of seems to be the message. Why doesn't that expectation work? Well, because people are human and we don't recover that quick from trauma or wounds. I mean, if you think about it, if a person was a victim of a rape, you know, would a, a husband or a wife be looking at them going, okay, now how quick are you going to get over it? How fast can we have sex? Or like one addict recently told his partner in my office, I'm giving you three months. That's it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing won't work. I mean, the, when you have that level of betrayal and that level of trauma, it's going to take time. Uh, and it's going to take a healing process uh, to re restore and reestablish a relationship. And really build and create a new relationship. And, and that's what you mentioned like last episode as we were ending it of the, the addict learning empathy and learning what's really going on and the depth that's going on in their spouse. Because the one thing that jumps out to me is, you know, if you're somebody that's been struggling with this deceptive world for a long time, you already know it all in the sense yeah. of, you know, the depths of it, you know, how long, and even if you're, if you're the type of guy or woman who doesn't get caught, but comes clean, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so you're like, finally conscious comes in and you're like, I gotta, I gotta let this out and be, let it be known. It's, it's, it's hard sometimes. I think what you're saying that we don't realize, Oh wait, they're trying to catch up on something I've been wrestling with for a long time. So they don't that's, know. That's right on target, Corey. Okay. And you know, one of the realities of that is we also know that it doesn't matter if the addict comes clean on their own or if they're caught, the level of trauma to the partner is exactly the same either way. Great point. And so it still is there, but the addict often has this sense of relief. Of, 
don't have to keep secrets, don't have to maintain the double life anymore. But now that partner has an albatross around her, his or her neck mm -hmm. that is dragging them down. And so emotionally and relationally, this couple is as psychologically far apart as they're ever going to be in their relationship. And that's why it takes a well-guided therapeutic process to bring them back together, to help them navigate the crisis and ultimately to get to a place where they reintegrate emotionally and eventually even sexually. Which I know that that's where the addict wants to fast forward to. Let's just yeah. hurry up and reintegrate. But as you said, there's a lot of steps uh, that need to be covered between where they are now and where he eventually or she eventually wants to be. Let's talk about disclosure. Um, I know that the the four day conference that I attended that you did here recently in Dallas uh, went into great lengths to describe what that disclosure process should look like. And I remember Dr. Sherry Keffer, when I attended her Women in the Battle workshop, she used the expression dribbles and drabs, that when a spouse finds out information in dribbles and drabs, it's re-traumatizing over and over and over again. Am I stating that correctly? That's exactly right. Uh, I use the term trickle-down disclosure, and I've heard drips and drabs as well. Uh, but it's where the addict is basically saying, I'll tell you what I want you to know when I think you're ready to handle it, which, you know, just terrifies the spouse even more. And then they're living wondering when's the next shoe going to drop. An analogy I often use uh, goes back to something that happened when I was in college and had to go have a wisdom tooth pulled. And the oral surgeon said, Richard, yo, my suggestion is we pull all four of them. Yeah, your recovery time will be no greater and your pain will be the same. We can do this one time or we can do it four times. Which do you want? Well, it's a <laughs> no-brainer. Let's do this one time and get it over with. Um, and as painful as a disclosure session is, and I'm talking about a structured therapeutic disclosure, what we know is 93% of the time, partners say they are glad they did that and went through that. And in a strange way, that disclosure process often relieves the partner uh, in that they find out in many cases that the truth wasn't as bad as what they feared or what they imagined. Now, in some cases, it is worse. But um, especially if a partner's been forced to wait a long time for it, uh, they're imagining all kinds of things. And it's just it's extremely traumatic for them. <laughs> Well, I would imagine that it gives the confessing spouse more of a sense of a clean slate if they truly disclosed everything in one fell swoop and that there's nothing else left to disclose. Yes, and especially these days when they can verify that disclosure with a polygraph, uh, it becomes extremely healing in the relationship. Um, and so, yes, the addict does experience a lot of relief. It's just that they also have to develop empathy and realize that while they experience relief, their partner is not. Mm -hmm. But eventually, the two of them can get together if they continue to do their work on this journey. Yeah, the, the whole polygraph question is something that Corey and I had addressed just very lightly in another show before. Unpack that with us, Richard. When do you feel as if a polygraph should be? requested or submitted to? And when do you feel as if that's overkill? Well, it's typically done uh, to verify uh, it's to verify the disclosure at the time that they're going through that process. Uh, there are some who then maybe for the first year or two want one every three months. 
Others get to a place where it's every year. Others get to a place where they don't want it at all. And I have had some partners who thought they wanted it and then they were satisfied with the disclosure and they decided they didn't need it. And so it's something I really kind of put in the hands of the partner to decide if they want it and, you know, how often they might want it. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, if somebody wants it, you know, every week, that's obviously overkill. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are times and most of the addicts, as they develop empathy, they look at doing an annual polygraph as a gift that they give their partner. Uh, it's a way where they can kind of externally validate their own sobriety and the work they've been doing. And it's a way they can say to their partner here, you know, you can now know that your fears, you know, can be relieved. And I find it interesting, though, real quick, that you're, you started the show talking about one of the things that the addict is really wanting or fears is being alone. Yes. But to confront that that possibility of actually having a real relationship means I have to be real. Yes. Which go, which is the oxymoron of of the addiction, isn't it? That it's like I'm doing this because it's giving me the illusion of connection. But if I really share what I what's going on, that's the only possibility I have of actually having a real relationship. Yes, when they learn real intimacy skills, yeah. it meets the needs that they've been trying to meet with an illusion. The difference is now they don't have to feel guilty right. right after. Right. They get to they get to go to bed with a clean conscience. Yes. That's good. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna really meddle here. I'm sure that there are some uh, spouses who wish that we would just drop this particular topic and move right on. But <laughs> what about in the case where a spouse really wants the polygraph and the and the betraying spouse absolutely refuses is there a red flag there i would think that is a huge red flag and you know if when couples get like to the you know place where they've dug in their heels and they're having a standoff that's where i'll often suggest let's you know do a polygraph and at that point you know you'll typically see a lot in the addict's body language you can tell you know with them stumbling all over or they start making excuses and they say things like oh it's not admissible in court which is a lie. It is admissible in court. Polygraphers testify in court all the time. Uh, they say, well, it's not reliable. Well, they're a lot more reliable today than they've ever been because now we've got digital technology and it's more that rather than just you know, a blood pressure monitor. Mm -hmm. And so the validity and the reliability of them today, uh, you, you'd have to have the IQ of an Einstein to fool a polygraph. Well, that, that's what I've heard some people say is, oh, well, I, I can fool a polygraph. I've done it before, 30 years ago or whatever. You know? <laughs> it's like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, maybe 30 years ago they did. But uh, yeah, one of the questions I know a lot of polygraphers will ask is, have you Googled how to beat a polygraph? <laughs> <laughs> Which I would think would be another big red flag. And we often find that a lot of truth comes out on the way to take that polygraph. Huh. Oh, interesting. Car confessions? Yeah. Yes. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Now, I love how you frame the polygraph as the way of protecting the betrayed spouse. Kind of unpack that with us. Why, why do you feel as if this is actually a great way to protect the spouse from further trauma? Well, what it can do, it also frees the spouse up to you know be a little more relaxed and more open in the relationship because if they know that annual polygraph is coming yeah they're going to feel like okay if something did happen it's going to come out 
uh, my fears will be addressed. And so, yeah, it really becomes a source of relief to that partner uh, throughout the, the time period where they're even waiting for the polygraph. It enables them to be a little more open and more real in the relationship. Yeah, I would think so too. So Richard, let's talk about what every um, betraying spouse really aspires to, and that's to reconnect intimately, sexually, passionately with their spouse. You talk, you use the term reintegration, which I love that word. It totally makes sense. It completely fits. Talk to us about what that process looks like. Well, it involves, of course, first, a lot of individual healing for both parties uh, at first. But then as they get into the advanced stages of recovery and they're experiencing real intimacy instead of the illusions and the false intimacy, uh, they're creating a new relationship. And that allows them to create a new sexual relationship within their marriage. And so it becomes a very new and vibrant and exciting time for them. Uh, it doesn't happen as quick as the addict wants. And some of the barriers, of course, are if the addict is coercing or trying to force it or trying to guilt trip or make it happen, uh, or from a spiritual abuse standpoint, if they're trying to use the Bible verses to force it to happen, uh, which we've all heard. Um, yeah, those are the things that make it tough. One of the main principles that I encourage with couples is from Song of Solomon. She invites him into her garden. And when she is ready, she will invite him in sexually uh, as well as emotionally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when the, it's there and I tell the addict, you know, if you coerce your partner, you know, you will never be satisfied because mm -hmm. you're going, you will always believe that they did it just to appease you and it won't be a real expression of intimacy. And but when they know that their partner has reached that place of forgiveness and acceptance and safety, which is the big thing, when they feel safe enough to be that vulnerable, uh, the addicts typically then won't have to worry about sexual reconnection. It will happen. Because I love the idea of the coercion, because in it to a degree for the addict, the coercion is just a perpetuation of their addiction that yes. they're, they're just portraying something that's coercing them that everything's okay or that they're okay. Or, but it's, so it's, it's the antithesis of being real. Exactly right. It is the antithesis of being real. And it, in essence, it makes the partner a part of the addiction. Right. Now I want to, I want to unpack a couple of the scriptures that are used to beat, especially women over the head um, into submission sexually. Uh, is it, do you consider it spiritual abuse for the husband to simply say uh, your, your body belongs to me? You're supposed to submit to me. I'm your husband. I'm your spiritual leader. And we need to have sex again because this is the biblical way to do it. Yes, uh, it is spiritual abuse when someone takes a Bible verse or the name of God or spiritual teachings and uses it to course and manipulate. And you know, most problems with the Bible can be solved when you put things in context. <laughs> and the whole context of that chapter is mutuality. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sharing. It's a husband and wife working together on their sexual relationship. Mutual uh, submission. It's mutual. Um, and so that's the key thing. And addicts are used to one-way intimacy uh, because sexual mm -hmm. acting out, pornography, affairs, prostitutes, yeah, you know, it's a one-way street. Mm -hmm. 
and in a marriage relationship, the couple is working on all aspects of their relationship together. Uh, and that includes their sexual relationship. And you just use the, the buzzword work. They're working together. I'm, I'm sure that in a lot of people's minds are thinking, but that just sounds like so much work to have to make it to where they're ready to invite me back in. But it does require work. It's not just a wave of the magic wand. I confessed. I you know, did what I'm supposed to do. Now give me your body type of a scenario. She has to heal. He has to heal. Both of them. Right. And again, I go back to the rape analogy. You, know, you wouldn't expect a rape victim to heal instantly. And yeah. why would we expect a betrayed partner to heal instantly? Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. going to yeah, Recovery is work, but I have heard people say over and over again, and I completely agree myself, post-recovery sex is far better, far more fulfilling than pre-recovery sex with your marriage partner. Absolutely. And I had a wonderful letter come in just yesterday from a couple that we had worked with starting four years ago. And in this letter, they recounted their whole journey from discovery through the whole disclosure process, through healing individual wounds to healing their relational wounds and a full reintegration intimately and sexually. And, you know, they're getting ready to celebrate like their 45th wedding anniversary or something like that. And wow. just the joy that came through that letter and you know, came through the, the excitement of it. Uh, their post-recovery sex is based on a different marriage. Mm -hmm. It's not the addictive marriage where they were medicated and you know, or the addict was medicated and not really present. And you know, they were kind of dancing around each other. Yeah, now they're real. Now they're honest and they're open and they experience the good, the bad and the ugly. And they're still together and it's bonded them. Mm -hmm. And now they love each other, not because of who they perceived each other to be, but because of who they really are. Right. And he's intimacy. Not, yeah. He doesn't have to coerce her for sex. Uh, he might have to stop her from chasing him down uh, because <laughs> you know, they're both enjoying their intimacy on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. that's, that's great. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So, <laughs> and yeah, as I said, said earlier, I don't recommend a sex addiction as a way to a better marriage, but <laughs> God doesn't waste your pain. And he's been in the redemption business a long time. Yeah. I'm not looking for him to get out of it anytime. Yes, soon. he has. So what start, I want take a moment to just talk straight to the person that it would be the betrayer on you know what what words would you give them on here's here's what's going on because we did this last show and it, and the thing that i love the most was talking to the spouse that's been betrayed of you're not crazy i think that's inc incredibly important to know what would you say to the other side i would say you know in your brokenness healing is going to take place on multiple levels yeah, it will not. It's about so much more than just not doing something. It's about so much more than just stopping a behavior. You've got to stop the behavior. That's bottom line. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's about emotional healing. It's going to be about healing your the wounds you were medicating with real solutions instead of illusions that are created by sexual acting out. Your relational healing begins at the same time your individual healing begins. And that's new. 
Uh, that's something that traditional treatment models do not embrace. Mm -hmm. uh, they tend to want to isolate people and alienate partners, alienate addicts, and then try to bring them together later. And we find that all that does is it drives them further apart relationally. And so the first thing you're going to do relationally in your journey is begin learning empathy, begin trying to grasp what it's like to be the betrayed partner. And you typically do that by remembering a time you were betrayed and when you were wounded in that way and you know, beginning to emotionally relate and to be able to sit in that pain with your partner without trying to fix it or take it away, but to empathize with it and to you know, let your partner experience your brokenness mm -hmm. uh, as you face some of that. So that's typically where it begins. Okay. That's and what comes into my mind is what if the addict just assumed that however long they have known about their own acting out, that they would give their spouse the exact amount of time to catch up. So if it's been three years, if it's been 10 years, if it's been, you know, however long, give your spouse that much time, not that they'll need it. Hopefully they won't, but you, you have to understand that they have had, or that let me do it in first person here. To the, the, the addicted spouse, you have to understand that you have had all these weeks, months, or years, or however long your affairs or porn addiction or whatever's been going on, you've had all this time to process it, to get to the point where you could accept it enough to be open and real and vulnerable and make your confession. But shouldn't they be willing to give the spouse an equal amount of time to catch up to where they are? They need to give the spouse however much time is necessary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my colleagues used to say, you know, it won't take as long as you fear, but it takes longer than you, but longer than you deserve when it comes to how long will it take? Um, you know, and I don't say that to shame the addict in some way. The reality of it is it will take time, but if you are establishing safety and doing the relational work and learning empathy, uh, it won't take as long as you fear. And you know, partners will heal. Uh, and it's really one of the challenges for an addict is being able to release the clock. Uh, and I just kind of remind people, you know, that you don't own time. You know, you're not <laughs> going anywhere. So let's let the healing process begin. And I'll sometimes liken it to a physical wound. Right. Yeah. We, how long does it take for a uh, a paper cut to heal. How long does it take for a knife wound to heal? Yeah, well, it takes as long as it takes, and that's going to be different for each person, uh, depending on their makeup, depending mm -hmm. on all kinds of things. And so uh, for the addict to not push it, to allow a natural healing process to take place, to allow the partner to go to therapy, to get treatment for her wounds to heal, or his wounds, if it's uh, a female betrayer, uh, and the, the good news I share with people is that when you allow that process to take place, there is all kinds of hope. Mm -hmm. Most of the people who take this journey get well. And I tell people all the time, if you're going to have a problem, let's have a problem we can do something about. This is a problem we can do something about. And yeah. you know, when you take this journey, there's a lot of hope. Yeah. And I would think that the more open and honest and submissive you are to what that spouse needs, that's like applying Neosporin to that surgical wound, to yes. that knife wound. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Richard, how can people find you if they want to learn more about this, uh, this process? 
uh, my website is capstoneatlanta.com. And I also refer to other organizations that I work with. Uh, appsats.org is for partner specialists and uh, sexaddictioncertification.org has a directory of people who are being trained uh, in this model to be able to work with couples and families in recovery. So if there are counselors out there listening who catch the vision that, hey, this is a whole new model than what I've been trained in, they can go to that website and learn more about how they can get their training more up to date? Yes, they can. And we would love to have them. That's awesome. The one thing that, that I hear in the two episodes, because, you know, being in the field, I'm always leery of the word addiction. It, it just, I don't, it, I'm, I have a personal bias against it because it just seems so dark and weighty and you know lifelong and yeah but you you come across the the one word that i hear and in, in the way you talk about all of this is how you ended this one was hope that there's a restorative thing that that is there that people can experience and so i have to commend you for the work you do and the approach you have and just the outlook that, it, that, it, that you have. And I hope our listeners hear that very clearly to know this is real, but man, there is hope on the other side. Absolutely. Now you see why I call him friend and brother, right? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> That's good judgment. Thank it sounds you so like. much for sharing your insights with us, Richard. Yes, You've been I've... an absolute delight to have on the show. Well, thanks. I appreciate you having me and it's been wonderful. So back to so, your Corey... question, Shannon. Um, yeah, sexy we're marriage radio yep. saying, I want to come sign me up. Sign sexy me marriage up. radio getaway. We got the dates, uh, September 17th through the 20th, 2015. Since we have the best listeners in the world, we have a standard we have to have on this thing because <laughs> it's going to be an outstanding weekend away. So we but get talk all that. about a great investment in your marriage Absolutely. relationship. I can't think of a better way to spend three days away from home in, as far as building richness and intimacy into your marriage in a way that it's going to blow your socks off right, and maybe it, a few other articles of clothing as well. Right. Cause this is a getaway. Cause it, it's not the, the, I think you and I both have the it's same mindset, right? It's not one of those yeah. where you're going to come home tired because of how much you know in, you invested as far as wow that was exhausting the only thing that would wear you out is how much time you may spend together in the bedroom and that that's cool if you want to spend that, that that way we love it well this has been sexy marriage radio we thank you for joining us wherever you are wherever you've been thanks for taking time out of your day and we hope that we'll see you again on the next time talk to you soon <laughs>